This episode is brought to you by... In the early 2000s, antiques dealer Robert Swope discovered a box of Polaroids at a local flea market. At first glance, they looked like photos from some sort of women's retreat. But upon closer inspection, Swope realized they were much more than that. Swope ended up buying every single photograph he could find and published them into a book with his partner, Michelle Hurst. Or, well, Mikal, maybe. Captured in these images was a group of lively, captivating women, some of whom identified as transgender and others simply identified as transvestites or crossdressers. The photos document the secret lives of men dressing as women who are perhaps in flight from conforming roles traditionally considered manly, breadwinning for their families, making repairs around the house, mowing the lawn, um, you know, man stuff even if just for the weekend. In these striking weathered vintage snapshots, we see these women um, playing card games with each other, having cocktails, um, sitting around and eating tiny sandwiches, and of course, just looking gorgeous and hamming it up for the camera. The place in the photos was called Casa Susana, and it was a popular weekend destination in Jewett, New York, which I believe is in Upper New York, for cross-dressing men and transgender women in the early 1960s. So this cute little getaway was run by Susanna Valenti and her wife, Marie, who also ran a wig store in town. Susanna Valenti, also known as Tito, uh, ran Casa Susanna, obviously, because of the name and she also wrote essays for Transvestia, a magazine published from 1960 to 1980 and aimed at cross-dressing men who define themselves as sexually normal as opposed to homosexual. Um, Transvestia also first published many of the photographs republished years later by Swope in his book, Casa Susana. Despite its slightly disheveled appearance, the bungalow camp was a vital haven for people whose gender expression did not match society's definition of, you know, normal. While the last few years have seen some minute progress made in the fight for trans rights and trans visibility, society in the 60s was somehow worse and even more regressive than it is now for transgender people. The intolerance of the time made Casa Susana a welcome escape where guests were allowed to wear the polka dot dresses, long opera gloves, and shiny peels, which stayed locked in their wardrobes for the other five days of the week. Many of the guests led ordinary humdrum lives and most likely worked in corporate jobs. Um, according to previous reports, many of Casa Susana's regular clientele identified as heterosexual and the photographs of their weekends away reveal an aesthetic closer to kind of what we would imagine a 1950s housewife would look like than the current concept of the hyper-glamorous drag queen. So these men were, were trying to look like the women they saw and not do the very, I don't want to say overblown because that makes it sound negative, but the very like, like they were trying to look passing, not look campy, if that makes sense. It's likely that had the people who stayed here been born in today's era of increased knowledge and awareness, many would have chosen to identify as trans women. 
Um, what we know for sure is that a handful of the clientele there went on to socially transition, living full-time as female when it became uh, more viable to do so. Others were simply comfortable identifying as cross-dressers and really saw no need to transition. Society may, on the whole, be more accepting now, but trans people, particularly trans women of color, are still highly vulnerable. Decades later, the model of Casa Susana has been rarely replicated. As I'm sure you're likely aware, most LGBT plus community areas center around music, nightlife, and drinking. And there's not really a sense of community and shared experience that made Casa Susana so vital. Similarly, the rise of anti-transgender laws like HB Uh, 1057 in South Dakota, which sought to block physicians in the state from providing puberty blockers and gender confirmation surgery to transgender children under 16, and HB 1365 in Florida, which would have made it a felony for doctors to provide transgender minors with hormone therapy or to perform gender reassignment surgery on teenagers under the age of 16, or a reminder that safe havens of safe self-expression like Casa Susana, are still desperately needed for people who don't conform to traditional cisgender identities. Unfortunately, the public sentiment that caused places like Casa Susana in the first place hasn't changed that much in 60 years. However, on a happy note, the smiles on the faces of the women in Casa Susana are a much-needed reminder The true happiness can come from surrounding yourself with people who understand you away from the gaze of modern society without the slightest hint of exaggeration. Places like this save lives. In the end, what we see in the photos made at Casa Susana is that gender is a quality undefined and personal for everyone, gay or straight. And this is Out of History. we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody just be ourselves be proud to be ourselves i think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine it's a pretty fucked up society when the army gives me a medal for killing a man and a dishonorable discharge is now there are certain people who can't afford to so those who can do it on behalf of those who can hello and hi welcome back to out of history a queer history podcast if this is your first time listening of course welcome and if it's not i appreciate you coming back to listen and i hope you'll learn something new today or at the very least i hope you'll hear something interesting Today, with the rise of so many different sources of information, all of them vying for your attention, it's more important than ever to do your own research and search for your own sources of news and information and search for the most correct versions of news and information. While, of course, I would say the media does have a responsibility to report the truth, We also have responsibilities as citizens to seek out accurate versions of truth, especially when there's so much available to us. More often than not, you won't find the truth unless you're looking for it. So keep searching, keep reading, keep learning. 
Anyways, today we're going to be covering somebody I wanted to cover for a while, actually, but it never felt like the right time. And I know this is only like the seventh episode, but please just humor me. Anyways, 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 um, our subject for this episode is one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, a pioneer of the use of stream of consciousness in narrative works and a post-mortem feminist hero. So I'm actually somewhat ashamed to admit the first time I became aware of this writer was as an older teenager because of the play slash movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The movie starred the incredible, inimitable Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And if you're a fan of classic cinema, you should absolutely check it out. It really doesn't have much to do with Virginia Woolf besides the title, but it called her to my attention because she has such an interesting, amazing, wonderful name. And I am just like a big fan of names that sound really good. I know that's a silly thing to enjoy, but when I hear a good name, like, like, ooh, that's a good name, you know? So if you weren't lucky enough to study her in college, here's a quick overview of her and why she's had such a lasting legacy. So Virginia Woolf was born in the... 1800s to an upper middle class family and began writing at a young age. Surprisingly, her family encouraged her writing, even though at the time writing wasn't really a thing women did. Similarly, access to education was strictly divided by binary gender lines, so Virginia was forced to stay at home while her brothers went to school. Um, girls or daughters, if they were allowed to have an education, were taught either by their parents, governesses, or private tutors. Um, Virginia and her sisters were educated by her parents, and each of them taught specific subjects. Her mother taught them Latin, French, and history, while her father taught mathematics. Her father also allowed her to supplement her education by spending time in his massive library, reading at her own leisure. While this did greatly expand her knowledge and perhaps lead to her writing career, allowing her to learn and do all of this reading was later blamed as a reason for her mental illness issues, which we will absolutely touch on later. In her late 20s, Virginia moved to Bloomsbury with her sister Vanessa and became a part of a circle of intellectual elite individuals, eventually called the Bloomsbury Group. Other members of this group are John Maynard Keynes, Clive Bell, E.M. Forster, and Leonard Wolf, uh, her eventual husband, actually. So skipping ahead, and believe me, I am skipping a lot. Like, I could, if this was just a regular history podcast, I would probably do like a three-episode series just on the Bloomsbury group because they are absolutely fascinating. But, you know... I don't want you to have to listen to a 45-minute podcast with me detailing every single cool thing Virginia Woolf did in her lifetime. So let's skip a lot. Um, Virginia and Leonard, when they were married, uh, started their own publishing company, which they called Hogarth Press, after the name of the house they were living in at the time. Uh, because I probably didn't mention this, but they were living in London and apparently that's just like a thing to name houses because they lived in multiple houses and every single one of them had a name. My house is just named my house. So, but I'm, you know, 
I guess. I guess if I were fancier or in in a higher tax bracket, I might have a name for my house. Anyways, so Hogarth Press, which is the one they started. So Virginia had actually taken up bookbinding when she was a teenager, and the two of them had been discussing setting up a publishing house for some time. So after purchasing their own printing press, they began operations. So Wolf believed that to break free of a patriarchal society, women writers needed a room of their own to develop. And she actually goes on this a little bit in the book titled A Room of Their Own. (laughs) Um, She often fantasized about an outsider's society where women writers would be able to create a space for themselves via their writings to develop a feminist critique of society. In her own words, she wrote, much preferring my own sex as I do, Ayo, I intend to cultivate women's society entirely in the future. Men are all in the light always. With women, you swim at once in the silent dusk. So though the sort of women-focused outsider society she dreamt of never came to be, The Hogarth Press came very close because the Wolfs chose to publish books by writers who took unconventional points of view. In addition to publishing Virginia's works, they also published T.S. Eliot, Margaret Atwood, E.M. Forster, Anna Freud, and Vita Sackville West, the latter of which deserves some further exploration. So the first time Virginia met Vita and her husband, Harold Nicholson, who was also attracted to his own sex, she thought Vita was rather dull and uninteresting. However, the two soon became close friends. At the time, Vita was the more famous and successful writer of the two, and she greatly helped out the financially struggling Hogarth Press by agreeing to publish her next works with them. And although the first novel she published with them didn't do terribly well, her second novel, The Edwardian, sold over 30,000 in the first six months, which is pretty great for the early 1900s. The success of Sackville West pretty much saved Hogarth Press, and at the very least, it brought them from the red to the black for the very first time. Uh, Supporting... Virginia's business, however, wasn't the only way Vita impacted her life. After a few years of close friendship, the two began an affair in December of 1925. And I'm not speculating here. The members of the Bloomsbury group had a very liberal approach to sexuality. And Virginia's affair with Vita was well known, even by Virginia's husband, Leonard. In fact, one time Virginia described a visit from Vita And she added in Leonard's reaction to the affair. So this is in a letter she wrote. She, being Vita, was sitting on the floor in her red velvet jacket and red striped silk shirt, I nodding her pearls into heaps of great clustered eggs. She had come up to see me, so we go on, a spirited, creditable affair, I think. Innocent, spiritually, and all gain, I think. Rather a bore for Leonard, but not enough to worry him. The truth is one has room for a good many relationships. Speaking of writing letters, the two of them wrote long, beautiful letters to each other during their relationship. And I won't read the letters in their entirety or a great sum of them. That's, you know, call back to the first episode. 
but I will read a couple excerpts just so you guys kind of get an idea of how they, these two spoke to each other. And also, if you've ever read a book by Virginia Woolf, like she writes her letters very similarly to how she writes her books, unsurprisingly. So let's start with Vita because I actually kind of prefer her writing. I'm sorry, but... We'll start with Vita to Virginia, and this was on January 21st, 1926, so this is shortly after they had begun their affair with each other. And it reads, I am reduced to a thing that wants Virginia. I composed a beautiful letter to you in the sleepless nightmare hours of the night, and it has all gone. I just miss you in a quite simple, desperate human way. You, with all your undumb letters, would never write so elementary a phrase as that. Perhaps you wouldn't even feel it, and yet I believe you'll be sensible of a little gap, but you'd clothe it in so exquisite a phrase that it would lose a little of its reality, whereas with me it is quite stark. I miss you even more than I could have believed, and I was prepared to miss you a good deal, so this letter is just really a squeal of pain. Trust me, it goes on from there. That is really just a small excerpt of these beautiful, long, well-written, just letters full of emotion that they frequently sent to each other. For balance, here's a letter Virginia wrote to Vita. Um, Vita traveled a lot with her husband, and that was one of the things that apparently irked Virginia a little bit, just that she was constantly gone. So this is what Virginia wrote to Vita uh, when she, when they were on another sort of vacation. Uh, she wrote, Look here, Vita, throw over your man, and we'll go to Hampton Court and dine on the river together, and walk in the garden in the moonlight, and come home late, and have a bottle of wine and get tipsy, and I'll tell you all the things I have in my head. Millions, myriads. They won't stir by day, only by dark on the river. Think of that. Throw over your man, I say, and come. Just lovely. Like, well, like I said, I do kind of prefer the way Vita wrote. But Virginia just has such a wonderful way of weaving words and metaphors and idioms together just in a very beautiful way like it's not difficult to see why Vita was so enamored with her and enamored with her letters like can you imagine receiving that from somebody and knowing somebody felt this way about you that is insane um anyways uh, Virginia was not Vita's first lesbian lover and definitely not her last. Virginia often found herself fuming with jealousy over Vita's other lovers in her life and felt, since Virginia was older, she was a little unwanted and dowdy. The affair ended sometime in 1927 or 1928, but their friendship survived up until around the time of Virginia's death. In August of 1940, when Britain was under attack from Germany and Virginia's friends were scattered across England, she wrote Vita a letter telling her how much she meant to her. Um, it says, I've just stopped talking to you. It seems so strange. It's perfectly peaceful here. They're playing bowls. I just put flowers in your room. And there you sit with the bombs falling all around you. What can one say? 
except that I love you, and I've got to live through this strange, quiet evening thinking of you sitting there alone. Dearest, let me have a line. You have given me such happiness. And as it might be obvious, this was after they hadn't spoken for a while, but immediately after this, the lines of communication opened up again, and they started writing each other frequently again um, up until Virginia's death. So to be fair, Vita wasn't Virginia's only female lover either. She openly spoke about her affairs with Sybil Colfax, um, Winneretta Singer, and Ka Cox. However, Vita was definitely special to her. For one, Vita was possibly the first person to give her actual decent advice in regards to her mental health. From the onset of her mental maladies, Virginia had been told reading and writing exacerbated her illness. Instead, she was told she should engage in physical activity and spend more time outside walking in nature and being in the elements. However, Vita told her it was far better to engage in reading and writing to calm her nerves. Under the influence of Vita, Virginia learned to deal with her nervous ailments by switching between intellectual activities like reading, writing, and book reviews instead of spending her time in physical activities that sapped her strength and worsened her nerves. And there was, of course, the book Orlando. And we need to talk about Orlando. We need to talk about the book Orlando. Even if the main character wasn't obviously modeled after one Mrs. Vita Sackville West, it would still be a seminal piece of queer literature. So in short, the novel is a parodic fantasy biography of the adventures of a young hero slash poet who travels across three centuries and meets key figures of English literary history. In Long, according to Leslie Kathleen Hankins, and this is quite a long quote, but it was so good I just had to include it, Throughout the novel, Wolf brings feminism squarely into the queer realm by confronting the sexually ambiguous protagonist with their own complicity in the misogynist gender sex slash gender system and by encouraging a feminist conversion experience. By tying lesbian erotics to feminist politics, Wolf seduces non-feminist lesbianism. We may reclaim Orlando as the longest and most charming lesbian feminist love letter in literature. More than anything, the novel mocks compulsory heterosexuality and challenges homophobia in an age decades before common society would come to accept same-sex love and nearly a century before the law would. Consider this passage. As all Orlando's loves had been women, now, through the culpable legardry of the human frame to adapt itself to convention, though she herself was a woman, it was still a woman she loved, and if the consciousness of being of the same sex had any effect at all, it was to quicken and deepen those feelings which she had as a man. Vita's son, Nigel Nicholson, also wrote this about the book. The effect of Vita on Virginia is all contained in Orlando, the longest and most charming love letter in literature, in which she explores Vita, weaves her in and out of the centuries, tosses her from one sex to the other, plays with her, dresses her in furs, lace, and emeralds, teases her, flirts with her, 
drops a veil of mist around her. It's important to remember Orlando remains, above all, a love letter. On the day of its publication, Vita received a package containing not only the printed book, but also Virginia's original manuscript, bound especially for her in leather and engraved with her initials on the spine. And as I said before, they did indeed keep in touch um, until the very end. They kept in touch until February of 1941, which was a month before Virginia's tragic suicide by filling her pockets with rocks and walking into a lake. Which, of course, brings me to the point in the episode where I say mental health issues are serious business. I have my own, which I take medication for. If proper treatment for bipolar disorder had existed during Virginia's life, she might have lived well into her 70s or 80s. Instead, we have a tragic note to the tumultuous life of a woman who challenged the status quo, wrote beautifully, and dreamt of creating a utopic hub of women writers. Virginia Woolf is known for her contributions to 20th century literature and her essays, as well as the influence she's had on literature, particularly feminist criticism. A number of authors have been influenced by Virginia Woolf, including Margaret Atwood, Michael Cunningham, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Toni Morrison. Nearly 80 years after her death, Virginia Woolf remains an important literary figure both in the world of early 1900s lit and feminist lit. In addition to Orlando, other works of hers, such as Mrs. Dalloway, The Waves, and To the Lighthouse, are cherished classics still being newly discovered and interpreted by young readers today. So thanks for listening to this episode, guys. I hope you got a little bit out of it. I hope I've encouraged you to go read some Virginia Woolf. Go read The Waves. Read Mrs. Dalloway. Watch, a, I don't even care, watch a Mrs. Dalloway movie. It's fine. I won't hold it against you. But hopefully I've inspired you to look up her work if you haven't already. She is and was a terrific, terrific writer. And it is also a tragedy that she did not receive the fame she deserved when she was alive. So thank you especially to the Virginia Woolf blog because they are definitely carrying on her legacy and unafraid to talk about every aspect of her legacy. And thank you to literary and feminist critics like Leslie Kathleen Hankins who are bringing new discussions into Virginia Woolf's works and making them accessible to the younger generation so all sorts of people can discover the wonder that is Virginia Woolf's writings. And if you like this episode, please, please, please feel free to give a little rating or maybe a little bit of a review. Or you can always shoot me an email at out.of.queer.history at gmail.com. And you can follow me at outofhistory.podcast on Instagram. I post information about the episodes, and I also like to post fun little gay history memes. So I have fun there. If you like history, you'll have fun there. So I hope you'll join me. And I hope you'll join me in a few weeks for the next episode for the next installment of showing people that history is gayer than you think. And don't forget, you're creating your very own history every day. So make it a good one. See you in a couple weeks. 
that in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want. Well, you gotta start somewhere.